episode of 66 Deep. On this episode, we are joined by Alfred and a new guest, Paramdia, and we're discussing Quidus Veritas, defending against the onslaught of falsehood. Without further ado, let's hop on in. I guess one of the questions I could ask while we're warming up is, um, do you think we have a very good grip on on dealing with things like false teachers, um, false preachers, um, false prophets, and false doctrines? Do we do we have a good grip on finding them um, and? having the necessary means to be able to to tackle those things and do you think we have any potential hindrances or things that we're lacking to help us actually initiate execute and admonish that sort of thing pastor alfred if you could take that one off yeah okay um yeah quite a few um questions there uh, Reese. um if i miss any any of the points out that you want me to come back to them specifically just tell me and i'll do that yeah okay. um so you you're asking them whether we have a grip as a church in dealing with um a range of false and erroneous issues teachers and practices and um, I would, I mean, if I go back, which I think for me, it's always, I always feel more confident going back and drawing a contrast in, on my, on what I see and on what I'm gonna say back to um, the beginning of um, the Christian um, experience and the, most importantly, the times of the apostles. And the reason why I go back to the time of the apostles is because in, in so many ways, the apostles were like um, gatekeepers. And they were not abusive gatekeepers. Um, um, they were perfect gatekeepers in the sense that they were given that responsibility by God to um to look after the church of god and the apostle paul would say um you know he has the care of the church on his on his shoulder and that care is not is not a man-made care like you taking possession of a congregation this is my congregation sort of a scenario this is the weight of responsibility and stewardship that's given to the apostles it's a gift from god for for them to nurture what God has um, given birth to. And he has entrusted them to be that people to give proper steer and guidance um, to, the, um, to the church, um, and to the embryonic church, the developing church, the maturing church. You know, that's what God gave them. So the apostles, they had awesome responsibility. And with that awesome responsibility must come also awesome knowledge and and revelation that um so may i i will never claim to have anything of those kind of a revelation i think anybody who claims that uh, i i'm suspicious of them because the apostles they were the fun, the fundamental foundation of the thing that we are now standing on and the foundation was so important that it had to be flawless, it had to be grounded, it had to be solid, it had to be able to endure earthquake and, 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 and heresy as you're talking this moment, heresy and false teaching and the wind of foolish doctrines and whatever else. And that's what the apostles would use those terminology, you know, that when we were talking about, um, he gave some apostles, and I think this was a lesson that was taught on Sunday, um, Sunday gone um, by by Brother Paramvir, you know, um, he gave some apostles and, and and teachers and evangelists and 
and pastors. Why? For the perfecting of the body of Christ, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we come to the measure and the statue of the fullness of Christ unto that perfect man, which is Jesus Christ himself. Now, saying all of that, you know, um, so they had, they had a knowledge of what God expected of them. And that's what they would be defending. And I said, when I use the term previously, gatekeeper, and, you know, I, I use that um, in, in this way. The Apostle Paul describes himself, he says, after my departure, grievous wolves shall enter in among you. Well, why are they not entering whilst he's around? The Apostle Paul, and we see through his letters and his administration, whether it be the Corinthian, the Ephesians, or whoever else, that he was a gatekeeper. When he saw um, um, heresy and whatever else, he would he would charge those who were in charge, deal with it. And he says, I have sometimes he says, I've already judged the matter before I come, but I want you to stand up to your responsibility, deal with it because you recognize it, you know it's. It's wrong because you've written to me telling me about it. Therefore, you, you, you identify it as something that is out of sync. You deal with it. He says, otherwise, when I come, I will definitely deal with it. You know, and, um, and because he was given that gift by God to deal with those things. Now, so, the, so we, we can see clearly, and if we search through the, um, through the, um, the, the, the epistles and whatever, we see that the apostles had clear um, um, resume, clear um, ideas of um, the need to deal with false teaching and false doctrine. Why is it so important? Because when this thing gets a grip, it's like a flood and it takes people out with, 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 with it, you know? And so the, the scripture would say, you know, when sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, it becomes set in the heart of men to do evil. It becomes normalized. And that's the fear. That, that's what happened to the Jews before um, the coming of Christ. The, the, the bad principles and teaching and evil doctrine that they had picked up around them became normalized. Normalized so that it was become like daily life and acceptable. And so I would suggest um, that we do have a problem, I feel, and the problem is one of familiarity. And, um, and I love the lack of familiarity that I saw with um, the Apostle Paul and the rest of the Apostles and the brethren that they were dealing they were They were brethren. They, had, they broke bread together. They were in fellowship, but they were never afraid to correct one another. And we see the Apostle Paul um, demonstrating this very, very clearly when the Apostle Peter was somewhat out of sync with reality because of fear, because of whatever intimidation or whatever. And he caused some heresy to, to, um, to give some normality until the Apostle Paul um, challenged it. And, and he, he uses some very, very strong word. He says, I withstood Peter to the face because he was to be blamed for the heresy that was taking place. Now, now had he been so familiar with, the, with Peter so that they were, he was, they were trying to preserve and protect some sort of a protocol, he probably would have kept his mouth silent and just allow the false um, teaching, the false practice to develop and to grow and to become normalized. But he was given responsibility by God to challenge these things under the auspices and the direction and the lead of the Holy Spirit. Because nobody challenging false doctrine and false teaching because they're powerful. They've got, they've got supporters. You know, they're powerful. Nobody can challenge them so easily. The Psalmist David would use the terminology when he was dying. He said to Solomon, there are some people who are in the kingdom and they are known as the sons of Belial. In other words, the wicked ones, they've got power, they've got strength, they've got, um, they've, they've got um, network. And David said, Solomon, my son, they must be taken. In other words, they must be, they must be suppressed, not suppressed, they must be taken, they must be captured, they must be held in prison. 
in spiritual prison. They must be excommunicated. They must be gotten rid of. But he said, the man that goes after them must be fenced around with bars of iron. Now, that is saying that there are some evils around and in the church too, because people have positions of power. And if you challenge those uh, doctrines or teachings or principles or practices that we see often demonstrated, you will be under fire. You will be suppressed. You, you, you will be challenged. You will be made. And this is the worst thing. You could be in the right and you could be made to look like you are the one in error. Therefore, the person going or challenging or contradicting those spirits and those principles and those people because we talk about spirits and we talk about correcting spirits it sometimes we get the thing wrong you know spirits i'm not correcting spirit i'm correcting people who are manifesting the spirits you know and sometimes it's just like we say we use some sometimes some very foolish statement you know like um God, God, God hates the God hates the sin, but He loves the sinner. You know, God, um, God punished the sin. You know, God is not punishing sin. God is punishing people who sin. You know, and so we get all those things mixed up. You know, God is not sin. Sin, sin is sin is something that is of no consequence unless human beings are around to manifest it. So you can't take hold of sin and shake it. You gotta take hold of human beings and shake them to get rid of the sin. Not the, you have you gotta confront human beings because human beings are the manifestation, are the proponents. They are the ones who promote sin. Sin don't promote itself. People promote sin. So it's the people that needs to be reined in and brought under control. So 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 um, brother Reese, you asked the question. Have we got one of our big problems, and this might cover a lot of the the the, 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 um, the digital question that you ask, um, is that you know do we have do we have um, things in place? Well, you know, probably not. Probably not, because sometimes what we do now, what I've discovered over the last fifteen or twenty years ish, is that um, you know there's almost like a license. Brother Paramvir could come and he could teach something which is in contradiction with the Bible, and and he will be allowed to do it. And we probably say, oh, oh, that's Brother Paramvir's own idea, but he's given license to do it in front of a captive audience, you know. And and therefore, you know, in time gone by, I remember as young people growing up, and we would go and preach, and if the pastor saw, uh, thought that some of the things that we were saying was a little bit, in their opinion, not too correct, they would they, they would probably come on after service and say, yes, um, that was a good message, um, Pastor Alfred, Pastor Paramvir, you know, um, however, you know, um, you need to have a look at this, which, what, what you said there, you know, it, it, you know, you have to go back to the Bible and let's have a, let's unpack it and see what the scripture might have been really saying in contrast to what you have said. And we had those discussions. However, nowadays I see people come up and say all kind of strange thing. Then the leadership might might not even make a comment or a challenge or a question. So those statements and those um, doctrines or whatever are passed over and the congregants will accept it. Well, nobody corrected, no, and it becomes like assimilated as if to say it's acceptable. So those are, those are some of the kind of thing. And I think probably one of the big reason for those things, there is a familiarity and we don't want to offend anybody, but you know, I could talk about offense. I could talk about offense and and the gentle Jesus that we so frequently talk about. He was the most offensive person under the sun, you know. And but he, he an, an offensive is not a bad thing, you know. He offended the Pharisees. The, the, sometime when he finished with them, the, his disciples would say, "Master, did you know that you offended them?" <laughs> you know, you, you know. But G, Jesus, Jesus was offending lies he was offending falsehood he was offending and if you want to hold on to falsehood you will be offended because that is what jesus came to reveal truth to, to let truth be known he said that's why i am come to manifest truth to let truth takes its root you know and so if anybody is offended because of truth well 
you know, I am not going to be sympathetic towards that. And I'll tell you why, because, because God isn't. And God didn't send us as teachers and whatever else to sympathize with, with, with falsehood. Yes, we want to um, make those people are, are, who are, who are um, preaching or teaching or practicing falsehood. We want to make them see it, but we cannot compromise with them. We are for truth. Therefore, we will always be up in opposition to those things. But, you know, we have this kind of a spirit, Brother, um, Brother Reese, Brother Prime, where we want to use these phrases. And I refuse to use it. Let's agree to disagree. Let's agree to disagree. I agree that we do not agree. And I will, and every hinge and every strength in my body will all, if I believe I have truth, I will always be doing everything in my power, every moment, every opportunity I get to let you know the truth that I perceive or see or feel or experience. I will never agree to this, to, for us to disagree. No, we disagree. To agree to disagree is foolishness. You know, that means that say, there are two truths. You have one and I have one. No way. One thing is true, and that truth must prevail. We must pursue until truth is exposed, until either I am found to be not necessarily a liar, but to be inherent, to be incorrect, to be not correct in what I'm saying. And you be, and you prove, and your statement, your stance is proven to be true. And I give you a classic example of this, and then I will hold my peace and my breath, you know. And it's like this, you know, the, 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 um, the stories that are unfolded in the scripture, they're not random, they're not just plucked out the fresh air and presented to us god has orchestrated every engagement that took place because they were going to become things to be written for future generation to use on an, as an anchor to get a proper and sound and profound understanding of the god that we serve and you know so we talk about job yeah, and, and I think, Brother Parmvi, I'm not quite sure whether it was you made mention of Job not too long ago, but Job, the things that Job experienced, they were orchestrated by God. You know, they were orchestrated by God, you know, for what purpose? God would bring God would bring Job into the attention of the adversary so that the adversary could throw all that he had against Job. Why? So that God could show to the adversary, but not to the adversary, only to us that would come afterwards that we can live righteously. That we can live righteously. Now, now, one of the big things that was happening with Job, and I think sometimes we miss it. The story about Job was not just, people say, oh, the question in Job is about suffering. Why do good people suffer? I defer those, that is not the real, that is not the real crooks of the book of Job. No, those, we know why good people suffer. We know good people suffer. It's been from the foundation of the world. Good people have always suffered. The question is not asking, why do good people suffer? The, the, the big question in the book of Job, it's relationship between a man and his God. And the man in this instance is Job. And the thing is, even when his best friends, and I want to hold you to hold on to his best friend, because they were theologians. They were men of God. They were wise men from wherever part of the country, of the world they came from. But they were wise men. But they, they, they were not as wise as Job. Or they did not have the kind of the close relationship and revelation that Job had with God, but they did have a revelation of God. Now, so they, so you know, and this comes straight to that false doctrine thing we're talking about here. So these three men, they had a perception, a belief, an understanding of God, and that's what they would be promoting. So when they saw Job was sick. They, they went back into history and into experience and things that they had seen historically happen. And they said, well, Job, you must have sinned. Search the scripture, search the history, going back and ask your fathers, 
have we ever seen anything happen to anybody like, like it's happened to you and they have not transgressed? But here's the beautiful thing. So they, so they were trying to defend God. They were trying to say, Job, you have sinned. Therefore, you are being punished because you're a wicked man. And they were using God as the instrument of Job's wickedness. They were saying, Job, you have wronged God. But Job said, I, he said, Job began to, he said, I searched my soul. I searched, I, I searched my heart. I searched my mind. Job began to ask him his own question. He said, have I defrauded anybody? Have I stolen another man's wife? Have I caused people to work for me and, and I've not paid them? Have I caused my laborers to be injured and I've not recompensed them? Have I been careless in the way that I administered this and this and this and that? And Job began to ask all those questions of himself. But Job, Job, he said, no, no, no. God is punishing me for whatever reason I do not know. I am become his enemy, you know, but the, but the men will say, no, God is punishing you because you have sinned. God is doing this because you have sinned. But we know, we know an insight and following the story that Job had not sinned. But listen to this point that I'm making here regarding the false doctrine. And we could follow these three men, um, Bildad, Eliphaz, and, um, and Zophar. We could follow their, their arguments throughout the whole book of Job how they are defending God, how they are, how they are using God as a, as a banner for Job's downfall. Now, but then when the story would come to a conclusion and God would visit Job and, and, for, and bless him and reveal himself to him and correct him where he needed to be corrected. But then there comes these three men who were in transgression of Job, of God. And God went to them and says, you three guys, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, I am not going to forgive you for your transgression. Transgression? Where did they transgress? He said, because you have not spoken the things concerning me that was right, like my servant Job. They were using wrong arguments, wrong philosophy, wrong conclusion about the nature of God and what God was doing and what God was not doing. But Job had it correct. And so God said to these women, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to pardon you. If you went now and offered sacrifice to me, God said, I will not accept your sacrifice because you did not speak correct about me like my servant Job. So therefore, go to Job, you three and get and ask Job to offer sacrifice for I will accept it from him. So this is false doctrine. These men, we would say, well, what were they doing that was false? They were defending God, which it seemed under the surface and on the surface that they were defending God, but they were erroneously defending God, you know, and, and that God don't want me to lie on his behalf. He will prove himself in truth and righteousness. He don't need for me to say something to make him look good, which is what these three guys were doing. But they were, they were, they were actually disgracing the name, the character, the nature of God by trying to help God. They fall into the category almost like Uzziah, Uzziah was his name, who tried to stabilize the heart of the covenant as it was falling, you know. Um, you know, that's what these guys were doing. They were helping God. God don't need that kind of help. All God wants from us, obey, follow my word, follow my edict, follow what I say, follow my precepts, follow my counsel, follow my doctrine, and don't add to it, which is what these guys were doing. So that's false doctrine. God corrected it himself. Job challenged it to the hand, because when these men could not challenge Job anymore, the Bible said, they held their peace because they couldn't they couldn't prove job wrong he held he held his integrity you know and so i'm what i'm saying is that um, false doctrines are not our friends they will cause people to be led astray jesus corrected the scribes and pharisees say you are holding on to false doctrine and you are not going into heaven and you're prevent through your false doctrine you're preventing those who would go in from going in why because of false doctrine and that's why i'm saying false doctrine it must be challenged but first of all we must recognize it and that the beautiful thing about it it is not hidden it's very visible if we stick so to scripture off, yes I sir. To bring in something sir um, sure. you say if that's okay, Ruth, yeah, it, mm -hmm. 
if I can bring it in yet. Yeah. So you mentioned that these things are in plain view. Plain view. Uh, yeah, in plain view. And so my question, it's almost like a question really, but I have, uh, I wanted to answer Reese's question on dealing with false teachers, yeah? Preachers, yeah. prophets, and doctrines. Yes. And I, I just wanted to show you from the scriptures of what Paul gave indicators of what he expected the church to do, what the defenses were. Yes. And I just wanted to check amongst ourselves whether these are being applied in the way that he expected it. Yes. So in Colossians 2.8, he says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradi tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So I'm going to bring that in a different translation, because sometimes the, the authorized version, the King James, the language can be a little bit difficult to grasp. So Paul says, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive yes. through philosophy and vain deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And um, the thing I want to bring in is that as Christians and the church, we have three enemies. We have sin, yes. for which Jesus shed his blood. Yes. And that gives us the victory, the testimony that we have of the blood of Jesus cleansing us. That's the victory over sin, yeah? So we can live holy. We can live uh, peaceful lives that please God, righteous lives, yeah? Secondly, we have Satan. Yes. Satan is our enemy, yeah? Yes. We also have the world. Yes. Now, this one here falls under the category of philosophy coming from the world. Yes, through the yes. channels of the world. We know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So what I wanted to bring in was just a slightly different angle of what I think is happening in Christendom today. We are seeing something we haven't seen for a long time, which is like the defenses have suddenly disappeared around churches because of the internet. So we are in an open battlefield. You know, if you have a battlefield, and you lose all your defenses, suddenly you're exposed to mortar, you're exposed to fire. So we are now in the situation where we have all sorts of things flying in from different directions spiritually, especially the internet. And I was conscious uh, where Paul tells us that we should be girded with the full armor of God. So the defenses are, we are in a spiritual battle. These philosophies that are destroying churches, I would say, they're not just happening because it's something natural that's happening. This is spiritual. Yes. But Paul says he's given us the helmet. God has given us the helmet of salvation. And this is the one I wanted to focus on. The helmet protects the head. The head has your mind, your eyesight, your ears, your hearing, your speaking. That's an awful lot uh, to do with communication, yeah? Yes. Uh, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. And I, I believe he recognized that in the 20th century, towards the late 20th, uh, end of the 20th century, churches were pretty well grounded in some cases, I think. A lot of Pentecostals were grounded and held on to the Bible, held on to the word. You have believers, you have teachers, you have, you have the right model. But we are now in an age where information is coming into homes. Information is coming into minds. Visions and sights and images are coming to our eyes. We are constantly under attack. And what's disturbing me is that I think the church is not ready to deal with this. The church hasn't found a way to keep up with technology. And what's happening is now people are getting their information, they're getting their teachings, they're getting their doctrines from outside of the church, from people that we don't know who they are, but because they're popular, as Pastor Alfred says, they speak well, um, they're theologians, and we can name so many of them. And this is what's destroying, I think, churches locally, because the, the people are listening to doctrines coming in from outside that are in contradiction to what the church believes. It's in contradiction to what the Bible teaches. These are fleshly doctrines. They don't know how to challenge them. And I'd like to call them Trojan horse doctrines. And one of the most insidious ones is CRT. And it doesn't matter what you want to label it or call it. And I don't really want to go into the backgrounds of where they come from. But Paul has already summarized that. 
These are devilish doctrines. They're, they're after the principles of the world. People are making writing philosophies to make a living and get a following and all this and that. But they have spiritual dimensions which are destructive. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is these Trojan horse doctrines are slowly creeping in under the guise somehow that this is Christian. And they are not Christian doctrines. So Christian ch churches are allowing in through the door, allowing in speakers, allowing in, uh, going onto platforms and stages with the world, with worldly philosophies. And that's not really what we have been called to do. And I give you an example from the Old Testament. You know, when uh, Nehemiah was building the wall, they tried everything to stop him from building the wall. First, he told them just to go away. We're not interested. We're busy. We're doing God's work. And I think this is Satan's attack, yeah? So the churches was busy. People were very busy, even in our local church. In the past 30, 40, 50 years, I know the history myself, they worked hard, you know. Now, then it came to another era where it says, okay, we're just like you. We want to help you along with your, with your vision. We want to get in there and help you. That's what's happened. I can talk about ecumenical uh, sort of, uh, a lot, um, if you like, parallels running with us. Uh, there are ecumenical roots coming to the church. Coming along, we want to help you. Starts deciding now the agenda. Now the church is trying to follow the agendas that the world has. Climate change you know, prejudice and all of that. These things, yes, they're destructive. Yes, the church should be challenging, but, but from a spiritual perspective, not to put down your weapons to preach the gospel, what God has called you. These are part and parcel. You know, these are byproducts and they will be dealt with. But when were we ever told to lay down our shields and our weapons, go and serve tables? This is what Satan tried to do in the New Testament. He told the, he got the apostles into doing serving tables, instead of sitting down, ministering the word. They said, we can't be doing this. That was the first attack. If you get your leadership, you get them from the main goal, what Jesus has brought them, the whole church, the foundation starts to shake. And this is what's happening. It happened in the book of Revelation, which I keep bringing up, when Jesus had to come down and have a look to see what's going on in the churches. And he clearly pointed out the weaknesses and the strengths. Because he is the Lord of the house. He is the Lord of the temple. It's, he's the architect. He can go in and check the foundations to see where the weaknesses are. Is there any subsiding? Subsiding. And there is some subsiding going on. And this is what's, what's disturbing me. And perhaps, Reese, this is what's disturbing you. How is it possible that when the Spirit is telling us this is wrong, clearly... The Spirit says, this is not right. These are false doctrines. Don't go down there. Yet as a collective, we are having problems. Why? Because we are following what the world likes to do. The structures, the organization, the way the world passes its information down, its authority. That's not apostolic authority. That is not biblical authority. And that's what's destroying the church. So information is coming in from all directions. But I'd like to say these are spiritual attacks. We are not... Uh, we are not girded in the way that God expected us to be, which is that as some armor has been given to us, every Christian should be wary, should be aware of the doctrines. The scripture clearly tells us, be careful how you receive information. I should be testing. If I hear some mighty preacher saying something, might look good, might sound good, but if I can't take that away, and compare it and talk to uh, my leader, if, if you like in church, my brother, my pastor. And this is what's wrong. It's my pastor. Yes. Pastor Alfred is my pastor. I can share information with him. We can cross-check information. Pastor Tony is my pastor. I can go to him and I can check it. But unfortunately, everything has become disintegrated, dissimulated. So information is all over the place. People are going all over the place which is really how an enemy works. If you have an army that's grouped, that's disciplined, you're going to have an effective army. But if suddenly everything is in disarray, they can move in and start destroying and picking them out. Yeah.
Yeah. So Trojan horse doctrines. Yeah. CRT is one of these. Yes. And I could go on a lot longer, but I'm going to go back to Reese. I think you may have other questions in mind, and we only have an hour, haven't we? So we don't want to take too much. Yeah, it, it might be a case that we it, um, it spills over into another episode. But just like, especially with the CRT thing, um, I it bothers me because. Um, like you say, it's, it is a false doctrine, and it's a false doctrine that has its core in something which is not, it doesn't have any biblical grounding, it doesn't have any reference to the true and living God, and um, it is specifically geared towards tackling things that God has um, put in establishment. But um, I think like we've had conversations before where like it, this wouldn't have happened had, um, like we wouldn't have noticed it had, um, the George Floyd incident not happened. But since then, it is um, as tragic as it was, it has sent ripples and shed light on the condition of people's hearts and where they're at. So it has um, allowed me to, to see where we profess to be Christians, but then we have one foot um, on scriptural authority and the other one in worldly bits. And the things that they don't, the two don't go together. Um, I think one of the biggest things that allowed that to to take root quite quickly is that especially after um doing some uh, sending out surveys and stuff it wasn't an, um an extensive one but uh, some of the the data that came back is that there's people who profess to be christians um that are trying to like be faithful um to, to christ and to be as active or any as active to the church as possible but they spend less than an hour in a week in their Bibles, so they don't know the truth themselves. And if you were to ask them questions on certain topics, the Bible would be very clear on one thing, but their conclusion would be completely contradictory to that. So it's a case of, okay, so you said that you're, you're a Christian, um, you know, Jesus is the, the Lord of your life, but you don't agree with what the Bible says. So like we've said, you're saying that the truth isn't objective, it's subjective, but we know the, the Bible not to, the Bible to be, um, it's God-breathed, it's infallible, it's consistent, it's something we can stand on because it is a solid rock, but there there's people who think that, oh, I can take this bit, I can't take this bit, I can take this bit, I don't like this bit, and um, going back to the CRT thing, he has kind of showed that. I would say it's, it exists in the church, like you see in America, where they're obviously they're looking at things like, oh, like whiteness and um, saying, oh, you know, these people are oppressors and things like that. And we're saying, that, oh, you know, Black Lives Matter. Oh, I don't stand with the, um, I don't stand with the organization, but I stand with the, I stand with the, um, stand with the phrase. But there are people who hold to, um, hold to the Bible and, it's, and they're being outed, like they're in the wrong, like you've mentioned, Brother Alfred, that, Oh no, you can't you can't stand with the Bible on this sense. You have to and I've I've heard like in exterior circles, people are saying, No, we don't need the gospel anymore, we just need to preach social justice. So no, it's the, the gospel that like all these things that are coming into the church, they are like honey to the ears. But if you were to get to the root cause, first of all, the first thing is that they have no interest in um right. in mm. Christianity whatsoever. They're things that they they have specifically that are to tear down um God's um precepts and his structures and things that are our blessings in his infinite wisdom those are the best ways to follow through but then their end goal doesn't have a solution for the um the solutions that we're propagating so say that we go through black history we go we'll talk about martin luther king that's great we talk about malcolm x as well malcolm x um used the marxist framework which is where crt comes through but obviously he didn't get very far because it's not the it doesn't deal with that root cause, but then obviously like Martin Luther King being a Christian himself kind of saw like what the gospel could do in that sort of sense. And he got that a little bit further and people obviously built foundations while he's done and pushed that a little bit further on. But we have all these, like he's saying, there's all these external things that are coming in by droves, but we have people who are scripturally illiterate and um, because they're not, grounded in the word and they're not trying to um exposition it and trying to unlock all the 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 greater depths of what's in that 
they just take on what sounds great to them. So, it's, oh, you know, I have, yeah, for instance, it will, it will divide um, CRT down the, the line that, um, actually, no, this is where I could use the video that I've got, actually, because I think um, Volume Ockham shows this far better than I could. Um, it's essentially, he's on a show called Undisputable with uh, this guy called Rashad Richley, who he's been invited on to have the conversation with, but he, this guy is obviously trying to push an agenda. Um, if I can stick this on, and then I guess we'll have to continue this on another episode. If I can share this one here. Full screen, and I'll get that playing. My next guest is actually no stranger uh, in Christian evangelical circles uh, and has a significant following. Uh, his name is Dr. Vodi Bakum, uh, Dean of Theology, has an extensive educational background, including postgraduate uh, study at the University of Oxford, England. Uh, Doc, thank you for being on the program. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your time. You know, you're kind of a mixed bag to me. You may not be a mixed bag to yourself. Uh, but you are in a I'm circle. a mixed bag to most people. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're in a circle of Christian evangelicals, but you also said some things that were quite contrary to Donald Trump. You called him an immoral leader, uh, which as you know, many of your colleagues in the Christian evangelical faith, uh, they kind of dismissed, not kind of, they did dismiss uh, morality as a prerequisite uh, to leadership as it relates to uh, former President Donald Trump. But there are some things that I would like to discuss with you on the record, uh, let's start with the social justice movement. I believe that church should be a place that expresses and transforms policy because of its value system. What are your thoughts about the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, wow, well, that's two very different things. The Black Lives Matter movement is very anti-church, it's very anti-Christian. Uh, it's a Marxist organization that was started explicitly as a Marxist organization that had openly anti-family and openly anti-Christian sentiments. Those sentiments had to be removed from their website because people found out about them. So if you're asking me about faith and Black Lives Matter, I would say that the two are mutually exclusive, especially from a Christian perspective. Okay, let me put it to you this way, because I think what you're doing is connecting an organizational structure to the movement structure. And here's where I bring them back together. There's a movement to emphasize black lives. And that doesn't mean those individuals are part of the organization Black Lives Matter. And there are some definite positives that Black Lives Matter uh, they've been able to work and negotiate with various governments around the country. You mean in order to enrich I, themselves personally? Well, let's go ahead and get into <laughs> it, brother, since you posed the question. Um, in Minneapolis, it was actually Black Lives Matter, the organization, who brought the attention to the murder of uh, George Floyd. Uh, they actually, not it was only the brought, video that did that. Well, sir, they, remember. They didn't do that. The video uh, did that. There was no need brother, for them to do it because the video brother, was Give out me there. a moment, brother. If I, was, if I was a guest on your show, sir, I would be respectful. We only have a certain amount of time. Um, not only did they bring in the organizers to help with the creation of protests and rallies and marches, they also negotiated with officials, including the mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, they, they're the ones who contacted Benjamin Crump directly. I'm friends with Benjamin Crump. They did something very similar in the city of Atlanta. They negotiated a new plan for policing uh, in the city of Atlanta by meeting with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. They did something similar in Miami, LA, and also New York. That was the organization. Now the organization, uh, they typically would take a step back once the public gets involved and you saw white women, white men, children, brown folks, black folks are marching in agreement that black lives should matter. So let's talk about the social justice movement of Black Lives Matter. Uh, if Jesus was here, do you think he would say black lives matter? Well, if Jesus was here, he would say lives matter. I know, for example, if Jesus was here, he would say that the black lives that are being obliterated in the womb matter. And as a Christian, I believe that lives matter from the moment of conception all the way to their moment of natural death. 
Okay. And so I'm absolutely committed to lives mattering, but I will not be held captive by an organization that has used that terminology in order to back people into a corner and cause them to live with this cognitive dissonance between the organization that again is antithetical to biblical Christianity okay. and the idea that people, regardless of who they are and where they come from, matter. I'm a Christian. I believe people are made in the image of God and have inherent dignity, worth, and value. Let me go to a statement you made about Jesus would say all lives matter. Um, remember the parable of the sheep, brother? Actually, I said Jesus would say lives matter. Do you remember the parable of the sheep? If I listen, you 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 corrected me earlier for interrupting you. I'm going to correct you now for misquoting me. I said Brother, Jesus said lives. Okay, that's fine. Matter. That that's a distinction that doesn't make a difference. My question to you was, would he say Black Lives Matter? And you did not agree that he would say Black Lives Matter. That was the genesis of my question. So my second question to you is, do you remember the parable of the sheep? Yes. You're a theologian. Yes. In that parable. Jesus talks about walking 100 sheep and then one goes astray. The parable goes that the 99 are stopped and attention or emphasis is placed only on the one. While we know through just a sense of humanity that all of the sheep technically matter, it's the sheep that has been put in this ditch that the shepherd stops everything, pauses everything to pay attention to that one. You see, I believe Jesus would have said Black Lives Matter because if you go to a community, brother, and you're looking at the deprivation in that community, there's an emphasis that needs to be placed on making sure we have economic equity making sure that we have social access, making sure that we have reforms in policing and criminal justice, because those are the biases that we've been living under. So that would be the sheep in the ditch, brother, and the shepherd would pay attention to that one, as the parable says when Jesus spoke it. You don't agree with that? Not at all, because you completely misused that text. The parable is one of three parables that were told together, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The emphasis there is on the fact that the Pharisees did not celebrate when individuals came to faith in Christ. So you absolutely obliterated the meaning of that text. Well, the let other me thing go is back. this. Let the me other thing is this. I don't believe that black I, wait a minute. You said I obliterated. Wait a minute, Doc. You said I obliterated the meaning of the text. So you get to finish, but I don't. Well, I I, I have I don't have unlimited time with you, brother, and I can't exactly. let you just blow it all the time. And so you, you made an accusation. Me. And I, I, I you yes, made an accusation. You one, you wouldn't let me get in. I'm saying you well, misused brother, text and you won't let me, your guest. Well, go ahead and tell me how I misused the text. After you finished. Go ahead and tell me. You got to be quick, though, brother. How, how did I misuse the text? You misused the text because you allegorized the text in order to pour your meaning into it when Jesus very clearly used that text in order to say something very specific. You don't get to change what he what meant was by that. What the specifics of the text? The specifics of the text were to rebuke the Pharisees because they were not celebrating when people came to faith in Christ. It didn't have anything to do with economic equity. The economic let equity. Me give you my, let me give you my understanding of the text. The talents makes it clear that Jesus was not about economic equity. Brother, if listen was, to me, brother. Take the let, allow me. Okay, I got you. I understand. You, you noted your rebuttal on the saying, record. Taking the one talent. Got you, Doc. I got three minutes with you, brother. So here's my understanding of the text. Uh, the text not only was talking about those who are Pharisees, which will be the religious government structure of that time, but the text was also about the judgment that individuals had toward people or toward those who were coming into a new understanding of who God was and who God is to them, because the Pharisees were judgmental to the believer. Because I don't have unlimited time, because I don't have unlimited time, let me ask you about uh, the social movement Black Lives Matter again. Do you think the social movement of Black Lives Matter is a bad thing, or do you yes. think it's a good thing? No, I think it's I think it's a bad thing. I think Tell it's me dividing, why. Number one, I think it's dividing people. Let me go back to what you said but, earlier. But people are already divided, brother. Can I? Can I? Again, are, are, are we going to be? equitable since you're about equity. Can we be equitable in the way that we communicate with one another? I got, I got one so, minute, man. Go ahead, go ahead, Doc. So what I'm saying is, by the way, I love this. <laughs> yeah, it's good. 
What I'm saying is that if you go to those cities that you mentioned, yes, BLM got involved in Minneapolis and Atlanta, and the crime rate skyrocketed specifically because of the things that they got involved in. All right, you that's have what's called this Ferguson effect. It's absolutely true. Anybody can go and look at this at the at the crime records Dr. before Bowden. BLM got involved and after. Okay, all right, I got to come to a close. My producer giving me the rap sign. But I do want you to remember that in places like Baltimore, where Black Lives Matter had a strong presence as well, crime has actually decreased by double digits. Arrests have decreased by 39%. Incarceration has decreased by 28%. Murder and violent crimes has decreased by 12%. You can go and get those stats. Two university studies did that. That was based on a coordinated effort between Marilyn Mosby and a reimagined prosecutorial format. And they've been able to decrease crime. Now you talk about the rise in crime. Uh, yes, some of these cities have seen a rise in crime, but you want to blame Black Lives Matter for the rise in crime when you are ignoring the fact that police officers called in with the blue flu, that cops refused to respond to calls, that executives and law enforcement and executives as politicians well, why should that matter? That because these Black Lives cops, Matter wants to defund the police. These cops are unwilling to actually police. Black Lives Matter wants to defund the police, so they, they got want exactly to reprioritize the budget. No, sir. Let me give they you want an to idea. Defund let me give you an idea. To, let me give you an idea to consider. And they should defund it's it. It's a radical Marxist idea. That but think goes about, to the think heart about what you're of saying. the Okay, I got to wrap, but think about what you're saying. Places like Ithaca, New York, 51% of the 911 calls did not even require a cop. They required a social worker. So Ithaca, New York decided to respond to their community and start hiring mental health social workers to respond to 911 calls because that is what the community said we actually need. But before I let you go, brother, you go around the entire world, literally the whole planet, and you preach what you call to be truth. Do you tell the white evangelicals you preach to, they need to get rid of that picture of white Jesus? Uh, I tell them they need to get rid of pictures of Jesus, period, because well, it's a violation of the second commandment. When I think Jesus a is okay. A picture of Jesus so is a violation of the second commandment. So I, I, I don't wanna see any pictures of Jesus because it's a violation of the second commandment. It's but a graven you image. tell them to get rid of their it's white a graven, Jesus. It's a graven image. They need to get rid of it. They shouldn't be pictures of Jesus. Doc, I gotta bring you back on. Uh, then we have more time, but I appreciate I you, man. I would Do love good sport, brother. All right, thank you, sir. Thank you. We're gonna have to leave it there for this episode. We're not going to give any teasers for the next one. But what we are going to do is encourage those who are joining us on YouTube to join us on the major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Continuing all the episodes on there, but the YouTube videos will be coming to a close, which should allow us to increase our productivity and release more content far quicker. We will still release larger projects and topics on YouTube, like debates, or interviews and things like that. But the main bulk of our content is going to be released on podcast platforms because it is easier to reach people. But until next week, take care and God bless.